Hello fellow pilots and other podcast listeners. You're listening to the Alaska Pilots Podcast with MEC Chairman Captain Will McQuillan, Negotiating Chairman First Officer Chris Gruner, and me, Captain David Campbell, Strategic Communications Chairman. I'm sure that by now, most of you have had the chance to read Captain McQuillan's chairman message from last Friday, June 12th. In that letter, he described programs we have been discussing with management that will help to avoid and possibly even eliminate the need for furlough. Those programs have now been finalized and approved by both your MEC and Alaska Airlines, and today we will talk about the details. If you'd like to refer to them as you listen, I have posted the full text of each LOA in the show notes. I'd also like to discuss what has been occurring since Alaska's employee webcast on June 4th, and at the end of this episode, we will take a look at the road ahead. I have one other programming note before we get started. Since this podcast was recorded, management approached your MEC with a desire to continue the talks about an early out retirement program. As we go to press here with the podcast, those talks are still in progress, so we don't have anything specific to report. I expect we will in the days to come, so please stand by. All right, let's get started. Will, on the last podcast, we talked about the company webcast and their Cash Burn Zero initiatives, as well as the news that they envisioned a smaller airline ahead. That generated a lot of questions, which we tried to answer in the last podcast and the chairman's message that went out on June 4th. Yeah, it definitely generated a lot of questions and anxiety. And then on the heels of it, the company canceled yet another position bid, which just added to the anxiety that the pilot group was feeling. And uh, we felt that with the cancellation of that bid, it was clear that the company was was feeling for a new direction and a new plan. And it was centered around what they'd talked about in the, the webcast around trimming costs and uh, trimming staffing, too. Uh, you know, it seems that the cancel bid was a clear indication that they were headed down a different path with the pilot group, and that made made me nervous. Uh, you know, we've said it before, I've said it before, that one of the clearest expectations that uh, we have as a union and that I have is that the company needs to share their staffing assumptions with us and, and have a conversation before they ever do forecast a furlough. And they need to underpin that conversation with firm modeling of pilot staffing, uh, modeling that we can independently analyze and that we can all agree on. So in discussions with them in the week following that webcast, uh, it became clear that they really didn't have that firm modeling yet, um, and largely because of the ongoing uncertainty in the recovery. And this is something, the uncertainty piece is something that we know too, um, from our own analysts at Economic Finance and Analysis, you know, they tell us that it's just too early to truly be forecasting what staffing is going to look like. And the company trying to force a discussion on furlough in particular would force them to probably have forecast too large of a number. And, you know, that, that fits the narrative to wanting to save cash. That's a good point. It seems like a few people were in a hurry or even a rush to start that discussion about furlough. We even heard from pilots wondering why we hadn't opened that conversation ourselves. Well, I think that's understandable because as pilots, we always want clarity and we always want a plan. And we've said it many times on these podcasts before that nothing good comes from rushing, whether you're in the cockpit or whether we're waiting for clarity on something like this as important as this and a plan. Um, 
you know, as I said, we just thought it was way too premature and certainly not your union's job in any way to proactively suggest that furlough was a foregone conclusion. You know, we insisted they wait and we've always held out that there was a path forward that didn't involve that. It's true, though, that all airlines have staffing concerns, especially in the short term, but that doesn't have to mean furlough, right? I mean, as, as you suggested in the chairman's update about 10 days ago, Southwest in particular had already found innovative ways to address this uncertainty with enhanced voluntary leave programs. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I had the opportunity to have several productive conversations with John Weeks, who's the chairman at, at SWAPA, and want to, by the way, I do want to take time to thank him and his entire SWAPA team at Southwest uh, for their support as we built the case for the leave program that we're discussing today. Um, as you said, David, I challenged uh, Alaska management to find a, a similar path forward after those conversations and did have the opportunity to have a follow-on conversation uh, with Brad Tilden and with Shane Tackett. And then uh, Chris Gruner had very productive discussions along those lines as well with the managing director of labor, um, Elizabeth Ryan. It was those discussions that led to a generalized discussion on staffing this week, like we just uh, kind of alluded to, and it became clear that there was a productive path forward. We'll get into this in a minute, but these programs are pro-pilot. I think it's pretty clear that we wanted them in you know pretty close to the form that they're in today, but to be blunt, what was in it for the company? Well, David, the, the pilots and the company obviously benefit from having some flexibility to adjust uh, the staffing to the speed of the recovery. There's a lot of unknown, as we just said, in terms of what recovery looks like. And it's, it's trending more favorably than I think a lot of people projected, uh, but it's still fairly premature. And one of the goals that uh, the company has is to respond to competitive threats. Um, in this uncertain market and to exploit opportunities too, if something comes along. So the flexibility in staffing is, is a big piece that they were seeking. Um, and then as we all know from two failed bids, that the company faces some real challenges in trying to make adjustments to the size of the Airbus fleet, right? And um, that led them to finally understand that they need the ability to free up some of their training capacity so they can, they can move ahead with whatever fleet they're plan they're deciding on here. Now, to put a finer point on our interests, obviously the MEC has the strongest desire to avoid a furlough, um, as well as another failed bid that's going to continue to adversely impact the, the pilots. Uh, and the MEC also has the desire to give pilots choice, always, and in this case, a number of choices to enjoy some time off, paid time off, in fact, so that they can, in effect, sit on the sidelines and avoid well, what we know now are really difficult commutes. Um, when it comes to this fleet decision, multiple training cycles and uncertainty um, as the company moves forward. You know, in, in this case, you can elect one of these leaves and, and sit on the sidelines um, all while, and we'll get into it here in a second, being able to exercise their seniority during a system bid and protect themselves. Overall, it gives the pilots the opportunity to enjoy their lives. Well, there's probably going to be a lot of, as we keep saying, uncertainty ahead in the recovery. Okay. So, yeah, David, we can get into the details of the extended incentive line program here shortly, but just to kind of put a, a clean uh, 
point or a finer point on it. The program's crafted with the pilot's interests in mind to, to find a path primarily to avoid furlough, uh, but also to make sure that pilots who won't, are going to continue to be adversely impacted time and time again by these fleet realignment bids have, have a better option. Will, you actually, both of you, both Will and Chris, you've taken great pains over the last several months to make it clear that a furlough has not been uh, predicted by management and and made a really important distinction of what that is. And I think what's been going on recently is a good example of why you haven't. Right? Co- correct. It's never been a foregone conclusion in my mind. And having been through this, like I said, twice before, it's our job as a union to fight, kick and scream against that narrative fully to the, you know, it's never a foregone conclusion and there's always a better path forward. You just have to be creative and you just have to kind of uh, be willing to think outside the box. Yeah. And which is, I think exactly what occurred here. And had it not been for this, it, it may have taken an easier path of just doing the sort of easy old school. Well, we'll just furlough off the bottom and correct. Does any of this give you any better sense of what we can expect from the fleet down the road? Yeah, I think there's some certainty that we know because it was in that company webinar and they've said it to Wall Street analysts as well several times that they are going to target either a smaller Airbus fleet, and they keep saying about 30 Airbuses um, that would be primarily, I think, up in the the Seattle area. Um, And that, you know, if not that, that they're looking at a, a complete fleet decision, right? Single fleet, which would likely be a Boeing product. And so, again, I think you're looking at a smaller Airbus fleet or a single fleet of, um, of Boeing airplanes. And that underlies a lot of the, you know, the training and these bids and things, the goals that they're trying to achieve right now. When you have a number of pilots who are off on these extended incentive lines, they're removed from the training equation. And so you don't have unnecessary training events, you know, as we've demonstrated now with two failed bids, that you'll have, you know, displacements and downgrades and upgrades. And there's always a lot of movement. And to the degree that that movement can now be deferred until that pilot comes back from their extended incentive line, the company has more bandwidth to be able to train. All right. Well, let's move our conversation into the details of of the LOAs. So, Chris, I'll bring you into that. Yeah, so, you know, David, uh, there are three LOAs that we looked at. So the first one is just amending the military leave extension that we negotiated a couple months ago. So it's really just moving that date back for the uh, military leave waiver. So uh, military pilots will have more time to be uh, on military leave. That doesn't count towards their uh, five-year maximum. Let's just take a hypothetical military pilot that's on military leave for the entire time of the uh, dates that we have set, then he can be out for the length of his, like over the course of his career for five years of military leave plus whatever time that uh, is encompassed within the uh, LOA. And any time taken in that military leave will be, uh, will be counted or will be waived and not counted towards his five years. All right, the second LOA is the extended leave of absence. Yeah, so the extended leave of absence is more of kind of your traditional uh, program that you have to uh, entice people to take leaves of absences. So it's basically just adds a few things here for uh, people to uh, look at to see if this program makes sense for them. Um, big reason we did this one is because there's no recall associated with it, unlike, and we'll talk about this shortly, the extended incentive line. So you can pick a a term between one and five years 
and um, you can go enter into a work contract somewhere else. You know, there's some rules around that you'll see in there. For example, if you go into a work contract with another airline, you're going to need a sign off by the uh, vice president of flight ops. But otherwise, it's fairly broad. And then you're going to be gone for that amount of time. Um, while you're on the extended leave of absence, you'll continue to accrue, accrue uh, seniority, longevity, and then accredited service if applicable for your retirement plan. Also, you'll get two years of uh, health insurance uh, paid for, so you won't have to pay any premiums. You know, you'll still do your deductibles and co-pays and everything else. Um, so that's important to keep in mind because let's say you got on a five-year um, extended leave of absence. Again, it's important to know that only the first two years of that you'll have your medical taken care of. And then uh, you'll also be able to maintain your uh, travel benefits that you currently have. For the full-time. Correct. Mm -hmm. For the full-time. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I, I think it's important to point out too that this does differ not just in terms of the certainty of being able to have a term certain um, from which you could you could get that in the current contract under a Section 13B personal leave of absence, except for the fact that again here you're accruing longevity, credited service, health care, those types of things that are precluded from a, a standard leave of absence, and those are actually enhancements compared to um, similar programs that were done back in in 09. Okay, Chris. So, I mean, in summary, the extended leave of absence allows a guy to be off property for a set amount of term and, and know for sure what that is. The The next LOA, the extended incentive line, there's a little bit more to that, a little bit more details. And um, let's go through that now. Yeah. So this was, uh, like Will mentioned earlier, modeled a bit off of the extended time off that Southwest negotiated. And then we used our incentive lines as a basis because they were very uh, similar programs. So um, basically, it's just like the current incentive lines that we have. So while you're on one of these, you're treated like an active pilot. You're going to get 50 hours at your current pay rates, and that's going to be along with uh, step increases and everything else. I'll count towards the uh, 50 hours. You're going to get 401k contributions, etc. Everything else like you normally would get right now on a current incentive line. Um, there's going to be a few differences. So one of them here is that they're going to be offered in varying length from six months to 24 months. So they're a much longer time frame. And is that on a monthly basis or uh, chunks of, of time? Chunks of time. So uh, they'll be offered by base position. And so in each base position, the company can offer, um, you know, six, nine, 12, 18 or 24 month uh, lengths of time. And it'll be at their discretion of how much of each in each base position that they do decide to offer. Okay. Yeah, and I think the finer point is that that's to provide them with some certainty on where their pilots will be so that they can conduct training. And obviously they have certain time frames. I think when they're forecasting their, their staffing models that they know, for instance, this fall and winter where in particular demand will be protracted, still forecast to be that way. Uh, we've already heard a number of questions in and around, well, what does this mean for the monthly incentive line program? And uh, that program right now is set to sunset after August. If I were a betting man, I would say that we won't see that back because that program doesn't provide the certainty that the company is looking for in terms of their staffing. Right. And I know that's bad news for many, but yeah, that that is a likelihood, and I think pilots should, in the interest of transparency, should know that. 
right? And I mean, the point of these is to have a stable staffing model so that company knows what they're looking ahead towards, but also some flexibility to bring people back. And on a month to month basis, that's just not really feasible. That's exactly right. Yeah, they'll be able to see what their staffing looks like down the line to make decisions um, about what they need to do. So um, this provides a lot of flexibility for them, just like you said, to be able to really adjust that staff into what's required as we're uh, you know meeting this challenge with the, the COVID-19 economy here. And remember, these longer-term leaves, too, we'll kind of get, I think, to this in a second, but you don't have the um, training requirement. You don't, with very limited exceptions, to remain current. And so it removes a lot of recurrent training burden from the company so that they can continue to train. Yeah, it's a, I'll jump right on that. I think it's a good point, Will. Um, so one of the differences here is that you're not going to be um, maintaining currency or doing your CQ. So um, what they will be allowed to do, though, is uh, if you go over 24 months in the uh, Boeing with that, after your CQ expires, then you have to do a full recall course. So uh, I don't know if that's good for anybody. <laughs> so uh, we did have an option here where the company may have you come in before 24 months to complete a full requalification course, but it's gonna be one that's uh, smaller, more tailored. It's not gonna be the full, hey, we're starting over from scratch. And so if uh, they you know, come to you and, and tell you, hey, they, they want you to come in, then you guys will uh, work together to determine dates on what works for you in order to do that before you hit that 24 month uh, stop. Um, the other thing is if you are going on a uh, 18 or 24 month, then uh, the company and uh, I'll be here agreed that will let you pick SIM time that hasn't already been bid on before you leave to be able to reset your clock. So you can go in and do CQ before you start this leave. Um, provided there's sim time available so again that'll be at your option if you want to do that but that would then preclude you from having to come back in for uh for get rid training. of that uncertainty on the backside. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. right so you don't have to but if, if you want to reset you could right it's there for you you could do it outside of your grace month or mm -hmm. base month or any of those yeah if you're in that category of the 24 month and and you need to get brought in to do a, a check ride will they give you a warm-up sim to get get the cobwebs out yeah so there is a program in our FOTM that's described for that training. And so it does have ground school and, you know, there's, there's other, you know, more Sims and there's going to be a, a checkout flight as well. Um, so there's, there's a bigger component to it. You'll get the full, you know, getting spun back up just like anybody else who's been gone for that long to make sure you're squared away. Okay, great. And one other difference here, David, is uh, the vacation. So, um, vacation actually is going to be treated largely the same for people that are out on this program. So you're still going to bid it like you normally would. You can still trade it up to the same amount of time, you know, before the month that you normally would be able to do. The only difference now is obviously you're not going to be on that vacation. So uh, when you hit a month that has your vacation in it, the company will just pay that out to you on a monthly basis above the 50 hours. Why are you bidding on vacation if you're not going to be here to take it? Well, there's a couple reasons. So uh, for one, it gives you the opportunity to kind of adjust what your pay is, right? As you go through uh, the months here. So you're looking at that 50 hours plus whatever your vacation is. Maybe you need that in different places. Um, the other piece is, is that uh, the company has the option to recall you. And that's the other big difference. 
And so you can now manage, you know, do you want to pull this vacation up front and get it out paid? Or do you want to, you know, stretch it out in the event you get, you know, recalled, you know, keep some vacation on the back end here um, for you to utilize, you know, for important dates or events that you have um, down, down line. So I'll take a minute and describe this recall. And again, this is a, a key component of this program. And when, uh, you know, the company saw what Southwest did, it was a piece that really kind of made it attractive to them because it provides that flexibility and staffing downline to allow the company to be able to respond quickly to any uh, rapid growth, which is really good for both of us, right? Because, you know, the company is able to be able to uh, compete, you know, in, in the market. And then that provides us opportunity and jobs downline here too, as we're, uh, you know, working together here to uh, take advantage of those things. So for a recall, what will happen is if uh, the company needs people back, they're gonna start in the shortest length of time. So if they still have people out on a six month you know, EIL, they'll start calling those guys and they'll do it by base position who they need back. And they're gonna offer it in seniority order. If they get to the end of that list, then they're gonna start requiring people to come back in reverse seniority order at that point. They'll give you 45 days notice um, to come back before uh, you're required to return. Okay, good. All right. Is there more? No. That's it? Yeah. So again, just to recap, it's, uh, you know, like our current incentive lines with the, uh, it's just going to be longer lengths of service. So six to 24 months, uh, you're still going to bid and trade vacation. You'll just pay paid out above the 50 hours. If you're on a real long one, they can bring you back for a training cycle before the 24 months of, you know, expires since your last CQ and then you're subject to recall with 45 days notice. All right. Well, there's one more uh, component here of these extended incentive lines, David. So uh, we call them the retirement extended incentive lines. And before we move into this, I just want to be clear. We still uh, fully understand that pilots want access to their lump sum, you know, with a, a severance medical kind of a package that we've seen in the past. And uh, we continue to press the company on that. So I, I want to be very clear that that conversation is not ended and this isn't in lieu of a pro program like that. All right, so what you're about to talk about is not an early out per se, or not in that way. Uh, there's another component, right, of allowing people access to that lump sum that we still think is important. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as you get into this, it's gonna have all the same components as an extended incentive line. So, you know, um, everything that we just talked about with these differences. So one, they're all going to last for 24 months or until you hit uh, age 65. And uh, backing up just a little bit, and the way they're going to be offered too is just in pure seniority order. So it won't be base position. So that's important to know as well. So just go down the list seniority order until you know they have to cut it off at some point. Um, now, one piece here is you won't be subject to recall. So the company, uh, you know, you're just going to be off the books the entire time. And then when you're done, you're going to have to make a promise to retire. So you're going to sign something saying, hey, when I'm off this thing, either I hit 65 or those 24 months expire, I'm going to retire or otherwise terminate your employment if, you know, you're not eligible for retirement. So it will be important that you understand what that looks like, you know, in terms of uh, your benefits package at the back end. And of course, you'll still have full access to all the normal contractual retirement uh, things at that time. Yeah, but this this is a one-way trip. It's a one-way trip. Okay. Um, along that way, if you decide you wanted to punch out, uh, you can still go ahead and uh, pull your paperwork at any time. You won't get any of the other downline benefits here, but you know, there's nothing keeping you 
from, you know, looking out saying, Hey, I want my lump sum now. If that's, you know, your situation and, and just leaving at that moment. Yeah. There's, there's nothing that precludes anyone from retiring. You're not an indentured servant. Yeah. And then, so then there's two other components here uh, when you're done. So first of all, if you complete this before you hit age 65, you'll have access to, or the company will pay for your health care for uh, two years or up to two years until you're eligible for Medicare. So, um, that will be there. And then at that point, let's say you still have time less left, then you transition back to your normal contractual thing where you, you know, you pay 50%, right. Of the group rates until you hit your uh, retirement. So that's, that's still there until you hit, sorry, a Medicare eligibility. And then the last piece here is that, uh, the company will, uh, give pilots that complete this, uh, 250,000 miles on the Alaska mileage plan. Mileage? Why mileage? Well, why not just use the PSTs or your past benefits? Yeah, and we talked about PSTs and things like that. But the bottom line is, is that you aren't an active employee at that time. So it was just kind of in lieu of uh, something like that. It still gives you the opportunity to uh, get on flights and, you know, expand those uh, opportunities a bit. So who would you imagine might take advantage of, of this leave? You know, so if you're considering leaving within the next couple of years, this is a way for you to you know, still get a paycheck at 50 hours, get your 401k contributions, travel benefits, you know, all these other uh, uh, pieces here. And it's, again, it's just a promise to retire at the end when you get a few extra things, but that doesn't keep you from pulling out between now and then, or even taking advantage of another early out opportunity if one becomes available between now and then. So you'll still have uh, access to make those choices. The only choice you can't make is to decide to not terminate your employment at the end of the program. Okay. Well, and that's good to know. If, if we ever do get a, a more traditional early out program, a guy would be able to take advantage of that. Yeah, he could choose that one over this if that one makes more sense. And I think, you know, obviously Chris alluded to it. It's, it's a flexible program for somebody who has other options ahead. It's not necessarily if you have the ability to retire, retire in the traditional sense. But I've already had that suggestion made to me that this is like subsidized tuition. I'm going back to school. I'm done with this airline thing. Will, you mentioned a few minutes ago how one of the benefits of these programs is it allows pilots to avoid the multiple training events, although they can still bid. What do you mean by that? Well, what we do with this program, and as a matter of fact, it, it you'll note in the program language that the extended incentive line program assumes that you will continue to bid and participate in position bids. Uh, but what we do is the, the pilots are treated like management pilots like pilots on military leave um, like full-time union pilots you, you know your bids are tracked but your carried is basically on paper um, and so your seniority is exercised you're awarded a captain spot or you're awarded a base transfer but it's held and you don't do the training the upgrade downgrade training um, or anything associated with it until you return to the line and that's exactly how this program is designed, too, so that even people on the extended incentive lines will have the ability to participate in the bids um, as fleet transitions, decisions get made, base decisions, whatever the company's going to do uh, here in the future. You'll have the ability to participate in those bids and, um, like I said, basically on paper and wait until your let's call it your final fate is known, right? Especially if you're a junior pilot in one of these bases that's likely to be uh, affected as we've seen with two bids, two runs at these bids, and you're likely to be affected. 
you can wait and not actually have to go through multiple training events like these 77 guys we have that are currently in training purgatory. Yeah, and Will, there's a couple of situations that come up with this, though, that uh, we did address in the language as well. And that's what happens when you either downgrade or upgrade as a result of a position bid. Yeah, yeah, this is a good point to make. Yeah, so first thing is if you're, you know, going to the extended incentive line as a captain and then you get displaced down to a first officer, well, then you're going to have a choice to make. So uh, you can either get paid as a uh, first officer on the incentive line at 50 hours, but you can also exit the extended incentive line at that time and then go back to the line as a first officer so you're not getting the 50-hour pay at that point. Mm-hmm. Yep. You, you entered the program with an economic assumption at, you know, at captain pay, and obviously when that mm-hmm. changes, you've got to have the ability to, to be flexible. Okay, and I assume if I maintain the incentive line, I, the FO pay would start on the bid effective date? Correct. Okay. On the flip side, if you're a first officer on an extended incentive line, and then you're awarded a captain upgrade, well then, even though you are a paper captain, you're gonna remain at first officer pay rates on the extended incentive line. However, you'll have the option to exit the incentive line and then do your training commensurate with the bid effective date, and then from there on, uh, go back to the line as a captain. So in other words, you're going to have an option, again, if you're a first officer on an extended incentive line and then uh, are awarded a captain upgrade. And that option is either remain on the incentive line at first officer pay rates at 50 hours or, again, go to training to be a captain and then uh, go fly the line then as a captain off of the incentive line. All right. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's good to know. So you could be uh, an FO wanting to protect your domicile and and bid for that accordingly a subsequent bid could come out you could potentially become a captain all this can happen without you coming back into the schoolhouse it's it's what we call a paper bid right right? exactly and there's established precedent on it and you know the, the reason also that this was done this way is so that there's accurate tracking um for the the red circle language you know again that's the company's language to administer but we want to make sure it's tracked accurately uh, throughout this entire process. And so the alternative would have been for people to be kind of out on a a leave of absence and not participating in the bids. And that would have made that a a difficult hill to climb. So Chris, it sounds like this new extended incentive line replaces the incentive lines that, that we're currently working under. What's going to happen with the reduced bid block MOU that that's in place right now? Yeah, so the reduced bid block MOU expires after the September bid month. So I just have that for a few more months. Um, Also, I do want to talk a little bit about that incentive line, just so people are aware of the timeline that's going on. But right now, the incentive line uh, MOU only allows the company to offer them through August, and then the VALOAs um, are offered through September as well. Okay, so those are going to sunset by September anyway. Uh, yes, that's correct. Okay. And we just don't know what the company's appetite will be for continuing them. I think on the reduced bid block program, we've already seen the scheduling committee's already seen block hours increasing, line values increasing. So I don't know that it'll, it'll have value to the company, but 
that's to be determined. Will, a question I have that's not explicit in the language is how long do pilots have to make this decision about that, whether they want to take advantage of these? Right. That's a very good question. And um, that is, to some degree, still largely to be determined. Uh, and it, it lies on the, the company's side. Um, they have some administrative tasks to handle before they can open these up for pilots to actually bid on. But uh, in a very rough timeline from a phone conversation with uh, John Ladner last night, I know that uh, he intends to have the next week to work out those administrative details and then plans for at least a two-week period where pilots would be uh, able to formally enter and bid for the programs. So a total of three weeks. And we've obviously consistently advocated for more time is better. These are big life decisions for for people to consider. And that was also obviously one of the reasons that we we called for that in the the chairman's message. We wanted it out early on Friday, even though we didn't have the full details, so that people can kind of get their heads around, does this work for me? Is this right for me? And that by when will that be official, dude? Do you know when they'll have a cutoff date? Nope. All we know for sure is that from Friday uh, until the time uh, that the bidding process would end would be roughly about three weeks, that, that pilots would have two weeks to consider the program um, and formally bid for it, but then this extra week while the company deals with administrative issues. Yeah, and in, in a way, there's a little bit of extra buffer built into that, certainly for the retirement, because you have, is it 45 days to, yes. to back out of, of a stating a retirement intention? Correct, yes. Yeah. So in, in terms of the um, retirement option of the incentive lines that, yes, you, you would have the, the standard guaranteed 45 days in order to, to change your mind, rescind that retirement election. All right. Yeah, it's a big decision. So we want to make sure that pilots have time to make it, be educated about what they're saying yes or no to, and have time to ask questions. Yep. And that, that conversation has started in my own house, as a matter of fact. Not, not me, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, for my wife. Excellent. Okay. Thank you. Well, well it's, it sounds like on the whole, there's a lot of value in these to the pilots. Uh, yep. I think so. There's a lot of potential value for pilots, depending upon your circumstances and that was kind of the goal, was to be able to provide a number of different choices that would uh, you know, allow a pilot to find either more time off and certainty about their work obligation or be able to really make a fairly decent amount of money um, you know, with the, that potential for a recall, but uh, from home. Yeah. So, you know, for some people, they may be able to take advantage of this. Others, they won't. And the good news is, you know, you don't have to. No one's forced into these. Right. Yeah, exactly. These things are all pilot choice measures. And that was the point, is that there's a way to get through this that doesn't involve something that's against the pilot's choice, like a furlough, obviously. Right. Well, and that's a good point that, you know, these hopefully are designed to avoid just exactly what you mentioned. In fact, you've you've said that already, that fully executed, this could avoid or maybe even eliminate any need for furlough. How real is that possibility, do you think? Yep, yeah, we should definitely kind of get into that and unpack that uh, more fully. And, you know, I, I think we have to go back to the early part of the podcast where we said that right now there really isn't anything more than that first blush of certainty 
into what summer staffing looks like, and the company's models reflect that that uncertainty. So, you know, the best way to think of these programs and how they would affect a uh, a furlough threat that these are more like staffing tools instead of furlough mitigation, because as we said, there is no identified furlough at this point. Um, but we did see that within the range of pilots that the company is currently modeling, um, looking at next year and a half, if we get broad participation in these programs, there won't be a need to furlough. And so, yes, it isn't a guaranteed answer, but that's because there's no guaranteed number that we're shooting at, if you will, right? They didn't forecast a furlough. We didn't identify it, and there's certainly no certainty. But within the range that they're modeling, this can do it. So I think, you know, you've heard me say a few times, David, that, you know, we concentrate first on shooting the alligators closest to the boat. And in this case, that means ensuring that the pilots have all the resources and the time to evaluate these programs. Um, and then we just we hope that they're well subscribed to and see what the, the effect is. And meanwhile, you know, the company gets a chance to refine its vision of demand and kind of what the competitive opportunities are uh, ahead as well. And so I, I suppose the, the, the conclusion is that if the company still emerges and feels that there is some need to forecast a furlough, we still have all those tools in Section 23 at the end of all this to then once again try to mitigate that threat. But uh, it, it looks good based on everything that we saw at the table this week, long as we get that, that good participation. Okay, that's interesting to know, Will. And I, I guess another thing we can say is we now have really seen how the company is modeling their staffing and, and we hadn't really until this week. Right, that's been the missing piece. We, we've had insight and briefings on how they model demand returning, um, but now we know how that demand correlates to staffing and that gives us the ability with that model in hand to hold them accountable. And we've said it many times before and I'll stand firm on that expectation that there will be no furlough absent a very compelling verifiable case. Right. I've heard you say a m number of times, we're not going to fight an invisible monster. Correct. And right. And that's where we were before, that you can talk about demand and demand modeling all day long, but that has to correlate to staffing in a verifiable way. To some, I think it sounds like we're splitting hairs between making these um, changes to staffing versus furlough mm -hmm. and how those terms differ. Can you put a fine point on that? These are staffing tools, right? They provide flexibility to adapt to uncertain staffing. And furlough mitigation is much more of a refined, specified process, right? You have an identified threat that you're working against, and you have tools to do that. And I think in this case, we can recognize the need for staffing uncertainty. And this may look like, feel like furlough mitigation in some ways, especially when we just said that, you know, this has the ability to eliminate the furlough. But it is it is subtly different, right? Because there's the uncertainty that we're working against in this model um, versus furlough mitigation is more of a refined process, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one thing I've noticed going through this, you, know, you and I, we've both been through a number of downturns in the economy and you you were furloughed once already from United. Right. Right. And, and then you were pretty, you missed it here at Alaska, but you were close, as I recall. Yeah. Within a hundred numbers. Yeah. And 
I think what's different in the economy this time is there are so many unknowns. You know, there was a downturn in the you know post nine eleven dot com bubble burst, and and you, you there was a sort of a predictable recovery, and so airlines were able to um, make furlough decisions based on that staffing model and on that economic model, and now there's it's a little less defined of what that recovery is going to work out so rather than solving that problem from furlough you need to solve it through flexibility and this sort of creative solutions that we've come up with now yeah i, I think that's a fair way to characterize it i've been watching like i said i get these multiple briefings every day from the ALPA economic finance analysis staff. And there's not even, you know, um, agreement all the time on how they model it. You see the, is it a V-shaped recovery, a U-shaped recovery, or is it the L-shaped recovery? Uh, what happens with second spikes? There, there's just a lot there. And even the conversations with the, the company that conceded that you're starting to see real sprouts of recovery and hope here and there. Um, positive bookings, and it does vary by carrier. And I think that this is just a situation that calls for that type of flexibility and to the degree that it is pro-pilot and gives the pilots something that they need and can use, then it's it's a good conversation to have. Right. And that's that's one of the reasons you've been very cautious about not calling it furlough or furlough mitigation, that we're, we're trying to solve a different problem in a way. Yeah, in, in a way, and it could be if the company had any real certainty to it and could put a firm number down that they were convicted to. But what we saw was that there's a range of expectations and a range of possibilities and that they were no more certain on one option than the other. So I think uncertainty was a better way to characterize this, and this is a better path forward. Yeah. Well, speaking of better paths forward, I one of the things that's encouraging about what has just occurred is... I think it's a good example of how negotiating with the company can go and, dare I say, ought to go. Right. And, and that's exactly what I said. And those are points that I've actually made directly to senior management. You know, after this process, this is a perfect example of kind of how things should be. That, you know, your MEC hears from pilots and, and we strategically plan to achieve your goals, right? We said, we work for you, we achieve your goals. And we bring those those goals to the company and the company should meet, listen, and we should work to find a path forward with a willingness to recognize how those goals, pilot goals and company goals sometimes do overlap, right? And the, the other point too that I think uh, that pointed out to the company is that, that our ALPA committee experts have real good relevant input into you know a decision model for the company and it's better to get that input beforehand than to have to try and triage things afterwards which seems to have been the path obviously here in recent history yeah and more to the point d decisions have been made without us that are just not possible they're in violation of the contract so not only could there have been a better path forward but they have in the past on occasion chosen a path that just does not work and and puts them weeks or even months potentially behind schedule of where we all need to be. Yeah, I think you're dancing around it. And the perfect example of that are the position bids that have uh, been problematic. The most recent one that was canceled, because I mean, to be clear, we don't write these position bids. We don't 
have a position on them other than we love growth and opportunity for pilots. But especially now where the company is making unpopular decisions for pilots in many ways, whether it's reducing uh, fleets or balancing bases, but we can provide you know relevant input to help them make a smarter decision that hurts pilots less, if you will, you know, and, and that should certainly be our role. And obviously we can sit and advocate clearly for the contract as again, this infamous bright line, they should be using the contract to model their business decisions, period. Absolutely. That's, That's why we have it. Yes. You know, I think we all know that this airline can be stronger and better with an engaged pilot group and more specifically when the pilots have a voice and that's what has often been been missing in a lot of the decisions in the past um, as i said in my message on friday night we have a lot of earth to move ahead of us and i hope that what happened this week can kind of serve as a template for um, a better path forward as we move forward in section six yeah that earth you're talking about is the things that we still need that are being addressed in section six negotiations. Yes. There's no shortage of pilot priorities to advocate for and solutions to achieve, you know, and I think that, um, the, the trick is to have honest conversations about tough topics and, you know, we find a way to move forward in a pro pilot way. And sometimes that's also pro company. And that's what I hope was, uh, was learned this week. But, uh, you know, the reality is that none of this happens without unity. And, you know, I say this all the time, but I'm proud of the professionalism and the support from the pilots for this MEC and the unity that this group has displayed through I mean, so much adversity, you know, starting with a merger and moving forward into Section 6 and now moving into this. And, you know, I think every time that people or circumstances bet, ag- bet against us, you know, we, we persevere. I think that's really true. Will, I, I've heard you, and we've had many conversations on exactly that topic, and I think what has just occurred is a good example of that. Part of the ability of the negotiating team to move this forward, I think, was having a pilot group that was behind you and behind the negotiating committee and behind their elected representatives. I mean, there, I think there's a clear sense that Gruner and his team are negotiating what the pilots want and what the pilots have said and and that unity builds strength that translates into their ability to get things done so that's been really helpful for this and it will be exceedingly important as we continue our our section six negotiations right exactly that you put a really nice point on that and i think uh, maybe as a final thought here i would say i'd be very remiss if i didn't say that i am so happy and proud of the team that supports this pilot group and me, um, you know, since the, the company webinar, it has been an all hands on deck couple of weeks. And I think, you know, that certainly, mm-hmm. um, your officer group, the negotiating committee, the training committee, membership committee, R and I, um, our Alpa national EFNA experts, the attorneys, and as I said, you know, the comm team too, we've had some really long days, right. Uh, together and, to be fair, uh, we've managed to, to come together every day and get a lot done. And I, I just want to commend the entire team because this is an amazing team. And I do think that the, the pilot group is very, very lucky. I, I agree. Yeah. Then thanks for saying so, Will. 
Yep. And I think that working with this team and a very unified MEC, right, the, the reps are all on the same page. It does give me a lot of hope that no matter what adversity we face, um, we're going we're gonna to be fine. We're going to succeed. I agree. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Alaska Pilots Podcast. I'm your host, Strategic Communications Chairman, Captain David Campbell.